We're good. Called me in order. Boom. Okay, welcome to the Queen Anne's County Commissioner's meeting. This is a public meeting that is being aired live on our local cable television station, QAC-TV7. These media broadcasts provide county citizens an opportunity to watch and review our scheduled public meetings. In addition to our live audience this evening, we are providing remote options for citizens to watch and participate in county commissioner meetings. Citizens may watch our meeting live on our Queen Anne's County website at www.qac.org live, or they may watch on our television channel, QAC-TV 7 and High Definition Channel 507. Citizens may also participate by joining the live Zoom meeting by going to www.qac.org slash public comment. And citizens may also email comments to public comment at qac.org. Comments received will be read during the press and public comment period on this evening's agenda. We acknowledge everyone's participation and by attending, you acknowledge that this session is both recorded and aired. Press and public comments will be taken and is limited to three minutes per person. If you care to speak, please sign the sheet on the information table in the lobby. Comments longer than three minutes can be submitted in writing for the commissioner's review. We will now stand and be led in the Pledge of Allegiance by Commission President Chris Corcorino. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You could uh, please remain standing. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so we'll have a moment of silence for all of those who have fought breast cancer. Thank you. Okay, we just had a closed session under Section 3-305B. <laughs> Eight of the general provisions article to discuss pending and potential litigation and under section 3305b1 of the general provisions article to discuss personnel and uh, no decisions were made closed session next that brings us to the approval of this evening's agenda for October 12th and uh, along with that the regular minutes from the September 28th meeting along with the roads board and the sanitary commission minutes from September 14th have been circulated for review. Do we have any additions or corrections? Yes, motion to amend the agenda and add desk item number 11 under the action. Second. Okay. Got a motion to second, all in favor of that? Aye. 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 Then a motion to accept the agenda and minutes the agenda as amended. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. All right. Thank you, Jess. Are you gonna read that? That's where they Okay, is. great. Thank you, commissioners. That brings us to our first uh, press and public comments period. So thank you for taking the time to express your views to the county commissioners during this public comment period. Comments are limited to three minutes per person. Comments longer than three minutes should be submitted in writing. When you come forward, please speak clearly at the standing microphone. State your name, address, and topic of interest. Keeping with the dignity of our office, we ask that all views be expressed in a respectful and civil manner. The commission respects your desire and right to convey your message freely, and we ask as, as a courtesy to the board and our citizens that you respect the commissioner's request and refrain from naming citizens and or name calling when offering any critique. No one signed up. No one signed up? All that for nothing. Nobody okay. Exactly. Okay. Anybody like to say anything? Close press and public comment. Okay. 
All right, commissioners, that brings us to the um, Department of Public Works. They're on the agenda first. If you want to flip to tab number two, and I see uh, Mr. Lee Edgar, our Chief of Engineering, and Jasmine Wilding, Civil Engineer 3. Mr. Quimby is in the back, the Director of Public Works. So tab number two, uh, the first item we have is the FEMA flood mitigation flood mitigation assistance scoping grant for the Cloverfields flood mitigation design study. So I think we have a, a grant request here. Can you tell us a little bit about that, um, Jasmine? Sure. You may recall that a few months ago you uh, signed a support letter for a different federal grant, the National Fish and Wildlife uh, Nutrient Removal Grant. Unfortunately, we were not selected for that grant. It's more of a implementation grant. Um, and you also may recall that we are pursuing an Army Corps of Engineers um, process through their continuing authorities program. And so that's our, our first priority. And then if that doesn't pan out, we have this uh, FEMA grant, which is uh, for scoping and design. Um, we believe this is the most competitive FEMA um, grant in this package so we've submitted that to you for you to uh, consider uh, signing the same commitment that we had um, looked at for the national fish and wildlife All right and so these are part of the county's ongoing efforts to get funding so that we can offer some mitigation to those who live in cloverfields who are being affected by flooding from that's correct different sources. Th this would be the design portion um, and then there would be need to be subsequent applications for implementation funding but some of the things that we would need for those applications such as benefit cost analysis um, identification of a potential um, solution with a an impact that would make a significant difference um, and then on the county side we would need to do all of the easement um, land right so it would be a, a, a lengthy feasib feasibility uh, phase right now before any implementation grants and um, solutions would be pursued. So um, this is all coming back to um, all the rain that we had and, 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 our, and the failure of the vacuum systems? Okay. All right. That's just part of where the water has nowhere to go at that point. Okay. But this is more, they're having problems where you have behind Petty Knot, the tax ditch there that's been over time filled in with sediment and branches and whatnot has been maintained. Um, county does not own that, just to be clear, but it's also one of those, it used to be, you know, all the adjacent property owners would pitch in money for a tax ditch and they would have it maintained. And then when the community was created, that was something that just sort of went by the wayside, right? But it's not a county obligation to do that. But we're trying to help them. There, we have increase in frequency of storms and intensity of storms, rising tides. So there's a couple of different mechanisms that are causing these floodings. And so we're trying to, it, it's not a simple solution. It takes a lot of studying. And so we're trying to get the funds. Um, and this is something that the county can't do on its own. We have to get funding from state and fed in order to make this work. So this is part of that effort. No, that's correct and there are many different factors which contribute to the challenges that they have in the community and uh, 
Ms. Wilding has been focusing her research efforts and partnering with organizations that would be best enabled to assist. And so what you see here with this one from the Federal Emergency Management Agency is one that's targeted to addressing flooding issues. And uh, the one from a couple, a uh, few weeks ago with the Army Corps of Engineers, again, a similar situation, and that was really focusing on the tidal impacts. So we're, we're looking at partnering with the larger organizations that have the ability to provide some good guidance and assistance and, and hopefully financial support to uh, look at some mitigation efforts to hopefully try to address or alleviate some of the issues. For the public, there's also a website we put together, www.cloverfieldsdrainage.com, which has a good summary of all the stuff we've been talking about. So I would assume like Ellicott City probably qualified for something like this. So just, I mean, I guess my question is the likelihood of getting something like this, does it have to really rise to an Ellicott City level or do they look to proactive stuff where, you know, maybe we're getting out in front of this before uh, rising tides get to the point where it becomes almost an everyday occurrence every time it rains. I mean, does that weigh into it that we're being proactive to try and solve the problem now versus wait 10, 15 years when it's, you know? I actually have the rubrics here for the scoring for this particular grant. Things that are going to make us more competitive are the number of properties um, in, the, in the flooding area that we're concerned with that have flood insurance that are nationally have nationally insured flood insurance that right. makes it more competitive our federal to non-federal cost match is going to make us competitive um, we we're near participating in the new community rating system our flood uh, plane manager has enrolled us in that if you're a part of that program you get um, more credit so there's a no number of factors um, that go into it, but I think we're on our way to be competitive for this grant. The scoping grant, the state only gets 600,000 year uh, annually to do scoping. Uh, so I tried to pick a competitive mark, hopefully for us to. So and this is not the only thing that that they're pursuing. I mean, there's a lot of different um, grants that they're looking at and different organizations they're looking to partner with. So this is one of a larger scope of efforts, really a lot of efforts, and I appreciate it. Yeah, I definitely uh, support this grant. What do you think the, um, it's curious that we got bumped out of this. What do you, is the implementation, the second round, which obviously this makes no sense if it doesn't proceed on to doing something, is that an even higher hurdle or what is that, what is your thoughts about that? I think it, once you're selected initially, your chances of getting follow-on efforts, whether it's through Army, or FEMA uh, raises substantially. I think they want to look at it more on a community basis or in the past maybe grants were to raise one home. Um, I think the fact that we have a hazard mitigation plan, we're, we're in line with our strategies, um, we're in an area that has known to have problems. I mean, even retreat or moving people is something they look at as an alternative. So it will range from doing nothing all the way up to that. And so I think regardless of which path we go forward with, just having the technical support, the technical information to support those decisions will be valuable. I move to execute the Queen Anne's County letter of funding support for the FEMA 2021 Flood Mitigation Assistance Grant application. Second. Got a motion and a second that we've already had discussion. So all in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? 
No opposed. Five zero. Motion carries. Okay, great. Thank you, commissioners. The next item that um, on the uh, agenda here is item number two on page three, and this is an update item on the MS4 program, otherwise known as the Municipal Separate Storm Sewer System Permit. So I'll turn it over to Lee and Jasmine to uh, update you on that permit. Thank you, Todd, and good evening, commissioners. Uh, as, as Todd alluded, we wanted to uh, provide you with just a brief update this evening regarding the county's progress and status uh, regarding the MS4 or Municipal Separate Storm Sewer Systems Permit that we have. Um, give you just a very, very brief history because I think it's good to kind of take back and reminder what is MS4 and how did we get here. Back in the 1970s with the latest iteration of the, uh, or at that time, the big Clean Water Act bill, the MS4s were created. And, and what that is and what a municipal separate storm sewer system is, is many, many years ago you had sewers and those sewers transported everything. Uh, today we have sanitary sewers that will take, you know, sanitary from, from the plants and we have storm sewers dedicated just to storm sewers. Uh, it's certainly been recognized that the sediment and the nutrients and other pollutants that are carried away in storm water contribute to water quality concerns. Uh, MS4 programs exist nationwide. They've predated the, the Bay Diet, which is of course something that we're interested in here with the WIP and such. Uh, many counties in the state of Maryland have been designated as falling under the jurisdiction of an MS4 permit. Uh, traditionally, these ones started very early on with communities that you would envision. When I tell you about a storm sewer, you tend to perhaps think of Baltimore, Annapolis, cities that have closed storm drain systems, curbs and gutters. Uh, those are all phase one MS4s. There are phase two MS4s, which are smaller and they can be more rural areas. And here in Queen Anne's County, we do have MS4s. Now those MS4s tend to uh, take the character more of roadside ditches. We, we have systems that convey stormwater. They just aren't your typical closed storm drains. Um, with the 2010 US Census, the census determined that portion of the county, specifically on Kent Island, had an urban density of such that we fell under EPA's requirements of being designated for MS4 regulation. So that is where we are today. We are required to uh, take a permit that's administered by the Maryland Department of the Environment for MS4. Um, that's the basic history there. This is something we've been working on for a couple years and what we've provided with you, for, with you today is a, a three-page summary which I think provides a pretty good picture of what an MS4 is, where we're at today. Thought that tonight is a good time to give you an update on where we're at because we've made some very good progress with regard to the MS4 permit and it's going to be you're going to be seeing some changes in the weeks and months ahead that will have an impact on the, uh, on the taxpayers here in Queen Anne's County. Um, generally speaking, what the MS4 permit that we have, it's a general permit, general meaning there are other counties that have this same phase two permit, and it prescribes six minimum control measures. These are public education and outreach, public involvement and participation, 
illicit discharge, detection, and elimination, construction site runoff control, post-construction runoff control, and pollution prevention or good housekeeping. These six minimum control measures are things that we as a county and an MS4 jurisdiction need to focus on and complete certain tasks to address these minimum control measures. Now, the good news is that many of the things that we are already doing, have been doing for years through our stormwater management ordinance, our floodplain ordinance, some of the outreach and stormwater best management practices we've done, adopting an ESD manual before the state did, implementing demonstration rain gardens and bioretention, our stormwater program, those are already doing what they need to do. Uh, what the MS4 prescribes are a couple significant items which involve increased resources. Uh, primarily, mapping our MS4s or our roadside ditches, <coughs> mapping all those, <coughs> preparing an illicit discharge uh, detection and elimination program for, for regulating those, looking for signs of pollutants entering our MS4s and enforcing that, and then the impervious area restoration. And what that impervious area restoration is, <coughs> doing a calculation, doing a study to determine the amount of impervious area in Queen Anne's County with a focus on Ken Island and then restoring 20% of that. Now this is where the impervious area gets, gets very important. Um, we look at impervious area that is not already treated. So take homes or businesses that have been constructed through the last say 20 years since we've had a stormwater management ordinance, if these developments have stormwater management measures that are designed and constructed in accordance with the basic stormwater plans, they're treated so it's like that impervious area doesn't exist. Impervious area that is not treated, we then need to restore 20% of that. And that restoration can be in the form of, re of removal or uh, coming up with other mitigation to offset the impact of this impervious area that's not treated. Now, this is, these points are important for a few reasons. One, the mapping of these MS4s, the development of the illicit discharge detection and elimination system, as well as the impervious area assessment require resources. We have a consultant that we've been brought on board that is doing the impervious area assessment. We have brought on board a stormwater management inspector that's dedicated to stormwater management inspections. And we've very fortunate to have Jasmine Wilding. Uh, she's an environmental engineer and a registered professional engineer in the state of Maryland. And she is managing our MS4 program to get these things done. So the permit is going relatively well. Uh, a few things you want to know, in addition to the resources that we've currently put in place, I mentioned that impervious area restoration. This is all predicated on the county needs to address impervious area that is not treated by BMPs. So as a result, our routine stormwater management inspections that we're doing for stormwater management facilities be it facilities owned by the county or facilities owned by 
private developers, be it a, a gas station or a single family dwelling, whatever the case may be, they're on a triannual or every three year inspection program. We have been doing this. We do need to play some catch up. But whereas before we would send out the notices and such and we would work with the property owners and give them time to address deficiencies in their facilities, falling under an MS4 permit now, the implications of not fulfilling these things in a timely manner puts the, the county in a, in a tough spot. So as a result, we will be doing more inspections and there will be more enforcement. And it, that, that, that's what it is. And that's an important thing to understand. Um, if I could ask a quick, yes. quick question. Uh, um, Jasmine, the stormwater management systems that are in these planned communities, are you, those, so you're referencing those, in the inspections of those and the effectiveness of those stormwater management systems that exist in, in subdivisions here in the county? Correct, yes. Okay. Th that's just one be, of the... Yes, those would be called what they term best management practices. And so that's what Lee's um, triennial, we have to inspect every three years. Um, when we've, like Lee said, we've been doing development review for stormwater for some time. So developers, when they submit their site plans, they all have stormwater on them um, once they come through our review. Whether or not the HOAs and the homeowners necessarily know they have these facilities is kind of another part of the puzzle. And so that's why a lot of the permit is public education and outreach. We're not really looking to come down with the hammer at, you know, right out the bat. We want to just send a, 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 a wide message. We want to clean up our own facilities and just let, you know, start the dialogue, especially for individual property owners that might not realize they have a dry well or a rain garden that's actually a regulatory feature of their home so okay. yes that helps 20 uh, percent exactly my question is that a is that going to be a moving number in the future or is that always going to be the standard for the uh the impervious area that's not treated you've got to take 20 percent of that area and treat it some sort of combination is that a number that who knows, in 10 years they might say, well, well let's make it 40% now, or is it, you know, how, how is the number derived and... And, and what does treating, what does yeah. treating lead to and what would you estimate the expense or the impact? Well, so, so that is possible. Right now it is 20% and that may change. Um, one of the things, the question that may come up is the watershed implementation plan. You know, previously we were doing this, where, where does that stand now? The MS4 is one of many tools that, M that MDE in the state relies on upon meeting Maryland's objectives toward the WIP. Previously under the phase two WIP, Queen Anne's County uh, voluntarily, we did things as, as a stakeholder that because we were not regulated as an MS4, the things that we did were encouraged and we voluntarily did that. Now as an MS4 community, by virtue of fulfilling our MS4 obligations, we are meeting those WIP requirements. So it is quite possible that the terms of, this is presently a five-year permit, there will be subsequent permits. Now we have it, it doesn't go away. After this five-year permit is done, there will be a new permit. Those things may change, and I think we'll likely find that the progress toward the watershed implementation plan and the Chesapeake Bay uh, diet will probably guide some of those things. And also the extent to which we and other counties are successful in implementing our programs. 
So technically, in five years, we'll be past. We'll be a year past when we're supposed to be done the whip in 2025. Five years puts us in 2026, and the whip is supposed to be met in 2025. So, and we all know we're not there because we don't know where we're going because nobody knows what that's supposed to be. Right. So this is just another shell game to say, hey, we want you to do this here. You're going to go down there in a very tight area in the narrows and all that where, yeah, you have pervious surfaces that could probably be mitigated, but it's going to be costly because it, it's an island. You got to get the water to the water. I mean, let's face it, that's the end of the day. And I get treating it, but I don't know. They're so flat there. You could, it's going to be expensive, right? I mean, we're looking at some serious money down there to, to try and even at 20 percent. Fortunately for this permit, which goes until 2023, and we have till 2025 to meet the goals, we can actually retroactively go back in time to 2006, which I thought was fairly generous. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically through means uh, that we were already doing for other environmental programs, such as septic enhanced systems through the Queen Anne's County Environmental Health Department, um, as well as some of the WIP projects, um, it, it's actually that's actually not going to be my biggest challenge with the permit. It's it's going to be um, a lot of the other softer items like good housekeeping of county properties, education and outreach, and stormwater enforcement. And you never know exactly what the state will, you know, hone in on 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 our reports. But the restoration actually has been not my greatest worry because of the allowances that the permit allows. Um, and then if it's helpful to your question, Commissioner, for the phase one permittees, which have recently received a new permit, uh, they saw their restoration numbers go down and actually they varied depending on the jurisdiction, seemingly that the jurisdictions were able to provide input into what their restoration numbers should be. So the, the oh. signs right now look like it, it would not be more stringent you know can't predict the future and the important yeah, thing to know too is that our impervious our untreated impervious area should not increase because right now we're establishing a baseline and it's for untreated impervious area anything new that goes in today should be permitted and with it comes a stormwater management plan which addresses everything so if everything is done and follows the proper sequence there's no reason why there should be an increase in untreated impervious area but therein lies going to be the ongoing the triennial maintenance and inspection agreements and and going back inspecting those making sure that they're functioning because if the state determines that stormwater facilities have been put in if they are not functioning adequately it's like they don't exist and therefore that impervious area which formerly was treated is now untreated and must be mitigated. So do you provide you so you the part of that study where you're going to do the mapping and you're going to provide what's there existing correct and so those will become part of the inspection process right out of the gate right and then any project that comes in after that would be part of the inspection progress process and then <clears throat> additionally wherever you mitigate to 20 percent and then outside of that there would be no other inspections for any other stormwater management in that area, I guess. You see what I'm saying? So you've got existing properties, like you said, that are already under an SWM uh, protocol when they were built, if they're newer. And then you've got some that met it from 2006 on or whatever, and then you've got to do 20% more. And is that where your umbrella of inspections ends, or do you go even out further to you know, adjacent properties that weren't necessarily on your 
radar when you develop this uh, untreated list? Right. Generally speaking, it involves any approved stormwater management plans we have. However, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it's a nice segue into our final note, we do have, Queen Anne's County has contested portions of the general permit. And one of it came down to questioning the applicability of the permit, whether it's just on Kent Island or countywide. And uh, we've, that, that has been in the courts, and we, we have uh, just recently <coughs> appealed to the um, Court of uh, Special Appeals, excuse me, the Court of Appeals, which previously had been very divided on the question of whether or not the state has overreached its jurisdiction on MS4s. There have been very strongly worded decision, uh, opinions on both sides from the justices. Uh, Presently, the ones who had very strongly worded opinions in favor of the, the local governments are still there, and uh, the, the court has agreed to hear our case. So that, and that is with the coalition of a couple other counties that are participating with us as well. So that'll be one of the questions we would like for them to help us sort out is the applicability of the permit to other parts of the county. But through our current stormwater ordinance, we've already had the, the task of the triennial inspection. So we, we already have them in our database, and it's just more making sure we're on top of it. We're not you know, missing great numbers of them, and we've hired a stormwater inspector. We're, we're doing trainings and, and catching up on that. So, but we, we've always been required to do the, the triennial inspections. And how long do you have to get the report? I know you guys are moving forward even with the lawsuit going on, but how long do you have before you have to have <coughs> uh, your six action items? When do they have to be basically put in place? So year, year one, which is due October 31st for us, we've got a little bit of a special schedule. That will include the impervious baseline, which it is, it can be updated throughout the permit as Things that didn't have inspections get get inspected and fall off the list. Um, that's due as well as our preliminary restoration plan. So I included a draft uh, with your package this evening. Mostly you'll see the septic enhancements um, that we're submitting for that. The other six are due year two. Um, progress toward all of those. Uh, the illicit discharge, that will probably be the the biggest hurdle in the near term because it requires a, an ordinance that we're having our consultant draft. Um, number four, the construction site runoff. That's always been similar to number five as DPW does number five uh, post-construction runoff. Uh, site runoff during construction is managed by the Soil Conservation District and actually enforced by MDE. So that item will be a fairly simple thing to report on and then the, the good housekeeping, which um, our consultant is also assisting develop some surveys and things. We'll be reaching out to different departments to do staff training, stuff, stuff like that. And there will be a report every year, correct? Yes. Yep. And that's one, one of the many things that Jasmine has in her uh, long list of responsibilities in managing the program for us. And she's really been doing an excellent job. Very well. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions, commissioners, on that? Good. No, All right. Good. Thank you, sir. I'm sure we'll hear much more to come on the MS4 yes. permit process. So, but thank you both for uh, the presentation tonight. It's great. Very well done.
one thing. Did you want to get a quick update on the on the library while Lee is here? The uh, Kennedy yeah, Library, if you have a few How's minutes. it coming along? Keep it short and sweet. Uh, please report. It's going along well. We are well within budget. Uh, don't know if you've seen it. It's as it's come out of the ground. It's it's really looking nice. Uh, we are behind schedule. Uh, it's it's a little bit difficult to say. It appears we could be as much as six six months behind schedule, which would put us instead of opening this coming spring of 2022, we'd be looking at summer or fall of 2022, and that's largely due to the supply chain issues and everything that mm -hmm. that we've seen throughout the industry. That's contributed to that. But in general, it's the library is really, really looking well, and uh, we're, we're very pleased with how it's coming together. And I believe the library board has made some uh, significant progress on their fundraising component. Is that right? They have. They have. They had um, our budget uh, presumes a quarter million dollars in the uh, capital campaign that, that the library had undertaken. It's my understanding that they've significantly exceeded that. And in part, owing to uh, we've had good cooperation from the contractor in, in hosting VIP visits for those who want to uh, are considering making a sizable donation. They can come tour the library, see the progress to date. There have been donation bricks that uh, the library has put out there. And um, I believe they had a, a first round of sales and those bricks will be going in at a prominent location out front. And I believe there are is going to be a second round of sales for those who may have missed out the first time. Thank you. Very good. Very Thank good. you. All Thank right. you, commissioners. Thank you. All right, commissioners, uh, we have uh, a few action items here for consideration. If you want to turn to tab number three. Um, item number one on page one, first up, is a uh, proclamation for um, White Cane Awareness Day. Yep. I get some Phil. Phil? Okay. I get to read that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, um, where is the white cane, which every blind citizen of Queen Anne's County, Maryland, has the right to carry, demonstrates and symbolizes the ability to achieve a full and independent life and the capacity to work productively in competitive employment. And whereas the white cane, by allowing every blind person to move freely and safely from place to place, makes it possible for the blind to fully participate and in and contribute to our society uh, and to live the life they, that they want. Whereas every citizen should be aware that the law requires that motorists and cyclists exercise appropriate caution when approaching a blind person carrying a white cane. And whereas Queen Anne's County, Maryland law also calls upon employers, both public and private, to beware of and utilize the employment skills of our blind citizens by recognizing their worth as individuals and their productive cap uh, capacities. And whereas Queen Anne's County, Maryland, through its public agencies and with the cooperative assistance of the National Federation of the Blind of Maryland, can, can and should facilitate the expansion of employment opportunities for and greater acceptance of blind persons in the competitive labor market. Now, therefore, we, the County Commissioners of Queen Anne's County, do hereby proclaim October 12, 2021, as White Cane Awareness Day in Queen Anne's County, 
Maryland, and do call upon our schools, colleges, and universities to offer full opportunities for training to the blind persons upon employers and the public to utilize the availability skills of competent blind persons and to open new opportunities for the blind and our rapidly changing society and upon all citizens to recognize the white cane as a tool of independence for blind pedestrians on our streets and highways. Signed to Queen Anne's County Commissioners. Good stuff. Yep. Good stuff. Can we have those yeah. Margie, do we have them? And we have some folks here, I think, for the proclamation. Did you want to say anything? Anybody? Thank you. Thank you. Just one minute. They're signed. They're, they're passing it down. Sign it, and that way we talk and hand it to you. Yep. Yep. All right. Thank you, commissioners. Um, item number two on page two is the uh, the Board of Education Administration building. This is um, a motion for some building envelope improvements. As you know, we've proffered a request for some state grant funds in support of the. Uh, preservation of the old Board of Education administration building, the old um, high school here in Centerville. And we have a rather lengthy motion there for your consideration. Can I get a, Can. a motion on that, please? Yeah. Steve, you want to read that one? Yep. I move to enable such repairs and maintenance to the current Board of Education administration building, formerly Queen Anne County's high school, adequate to stabilize and prevent further major deterioration of the structure. This commitment shall be exercised on or before the closing of the next county budget cycle in May 2022. With this action, the county commissioners warrant to the public a commitment to the preservation of this historic building, retaining the architecture of Chesterfield Avenue and the county seat. Second. Got a motion to second a discussion on that. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? By zero, the motion carries. Okay, thank you, commissioners. Item three on page number four is um, a request from the Department of Emergency Services uh, EMS division to purchase a replacement supervisor emergency response unit for a um, super duty crew cab wagon and that is off of the co-stars purchasing program pre-established government contract for an amount of $134,763. I move to uh, authorize director of the Department of Emergency Services purchase a 2022 Ford F-350 4x4 Super Duty Crew Cab with a swab Wagon Pioneer fiberglass body piggybacking off CoStar's cooperative purchasing program bid 
in the amount of $134,763. Second. We got a motion to second. Any discussion? Tell us what you're going to use this for. This is the replacement supervisor truck, EMS duty officer vehicle. A few years ago, our primary one, I came into and I told you about the pod system, about mounting it. This is the same general idea for the south supervisor unit, except instead of the pod being mounted in the top of the bed, we found that going lower with it for the shorter individuals uh, is going to make it easier and less strains on back. So it's the same concept and it's going to replace our south unit EMS duty officer. Briefly, what equipment does a, one of these beasts carry? I am happy that you asked. Everything that one of our transport units carries minus a stretcher, it also carries extra medications to replace the units that are getting tied up on calls and use medications that are unable to replace their narcotics or controlled substances at the hospitals. Our EMS officers will replace them right there and then they'll get to the hospital and replace it. That way we keep our transport units on the road in right. service. Um, and we carry Mark I, which God forbid we have a sarin gas or even with organic phosphates that are controlled in the farming industry. We have to be prepared for any overdoses that they control and that is controlled inside the supervisor's units. And we have 50 to 80, I think, cartridges mm. of those that we can inject because it takes a lot of medicine to reverse that role. So it's extra equipment. Um, we move equipment each day for our medical supplies throughout the county. So this is room so we can safely move those supplies and uh, go to all the critical calls. There's also a state volunteer inspection program and all of our units are inspected and certified through that program. And there's a whole laundry list of equipment that we have to carry to be part of that program. And the goal with this is when this lifetime is up, just like the first unit, that part will come off. We'll put a new chassis under and as long as it worked well for us, it'll be replaced like that. And it'll just keep costs down for the future replacement of these vehicles. Very well. Good. All right. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Aye. Motion carries. All right. Thank you, commissioners. Item four on page seven is um, AED cardiac monitor request purchase. And this is also from emergency medical services division to purchase uh, AEDs and cardiac monitors uh, off of the state of Maryland pricing contract. Can I get a motion on that, please? Uh, I move to authorize Director of the Department of Emergency Services to purchase two Zoll X Series Advanced Cardiac Monitors and Accessories and five AED3 Automated External Defib Relators and Accessories totaling 71000 496. Second. <clears throat> Motion to second. Any discussion? The AEDs, where are they going? Uh, are they replacing existing out. ones or are they going to be new locations? They're going to finish filling out law enforcement vehicles and also we're getting to a point where we're parting, starting to put them in some county vehicles also besides the um, law enforcement. Remember the whole goal is at some point every county vehicle will have an AED in it along with stop the bleed and some first aid things. So we're slowly getting to that point. And how long does an AED last before you have to change probably it? Probably a good 10 years. Huh? A minimum, probably 10 years. 10 years. But our goal is, uh, once we got the whole fleet with an AED, is to put out an all-call every time there's a cardiac arrest, and anybody that's within the area or closest to respond to it can respond to it. So, mm -hmm. like, the parks, most likely parks employees are going to be on scene before us, and this gives them a tool to use before we get there. 
Very cool. This goes hands in hands with the continuing hands-only CPR and AED education we've been doing with the county employees. Very good, excellent. Any other questions? <clears throat> All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? 5-0, motion carries. All right, thank you, commissioners. Item number five on page nine is the emer administrative emergency response vehicle, and this is a request by, <clears throat> excuse me, the Department of Emergency Services to purchase a replacement administrative emergency response vehicle, Ford Interceptor, uh, through the Hertrick Fleet Services uh, State of Maryland government contract. Can I get a motion on that? Please. I move to authorize the Director of Department of Emergency Services to purchase a 2022 Ford Interceptor, piggybacking off of the Maryland BPO001B160035 from Hertrick Fleet Services for the amount of 37999 Second. We got a motion and a second. Any discussion? So this is similar to a Ford Explorer? So uh, what we did is we're basically piggybacking off of what the sheriff's office is buying for deputies. So it's the exact same vehicle that they currently have. It's the smaller sized SUV. It's a hybrid uh, and it's one of our administrative vehicles. It also is a secondary emergency response vehicle. Okay. Any other questions? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? 5-0, motion carried. Thank you, Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you very much. Thank you, two gentlemen. They'll be back up for their update here shortly. My purple shirt. Item number six on page 12. Okay. We have a number of draft standard operating policies, including uh, the payroll policy and timesheet <coughs> pay codes, sick and safe leave policy, inclement weather policy, separation of employment policy, and prorating of personal days policies that have been updated with our morale committee, our department directors, and these are largely as a result of the new human resources and payroll implementation plan. So they're ready for your consideration and adoption. I move that the aforementioned policies be adopted and presented to be effective in seven business days. Second. Got a motion and a second in discussion. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Four in favor, uh, one absent. Motion carries. Okay, thank you, commissioners. All right, item number seven is an MOU with Visit Annapolis and Anne Arundel County. And this is a, an exciting opportunity for us to collaborate with Visit Annapolis and Anne Arundel County on a feasibility study for a passenger ferry with a focus on tourism to promote um, that attribute here in Queen Anne's County and our Western Shore partners. And Ms. Heather Tonelli here is here to um, explain that a bit, but can I get a motion? I would be uh, happy to make this motion. First, please. All right, thank you. <laughs> you I'm can't a, drive it, though. This, is, for, so this is not for vehicles. This is for... I know, passengers. I, know, I, know. I don't Just, want no vehicles on there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I move that we support the Queen Anne's County Department of Economic and Tourism Development signing the MOU with Visit Annapolis and Anne Arundel County to collaborate in the Ferry Project Feasibility Study. Second. Second. Motion to second. Tell us about it. Okay. So this summer during MAKO, we met with Visit Annapolis in Anne Arundel County uh, to talk about the possibility of a passenger ferry originally starting in Anne Arundel County at the, the docks there and then coming over to Queen Anne's. We haven't uh, gotten to the point where we're saying what port that will be. Um, but it, through the process, we've done a lot of investigation and background work. And quite uh, honestly, what's interesting is there are several studies out there already. Um, in fact, the state legislature um, asked for one, but in a different capability, looking at 
um, a vehicle ferry as a way to reduce uh, Bay Bridge traffic, and they absolutely determined that that is not an I'll option. Look. So that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at a passenger ferry for tourism opportunities, um, and we have an MOU here uh, that we're asking permission to, to sign to move forward. There is a grant opportunity through um, the Economic Development Administration, and it's called a Build Back Better Regional um, Grant. And what that will allow us to do if we're selected is uh, fund this feasibility study at 100%, and then we can determine what other areas within the Chesapeake Bay region would have an opportunity to join in on this, this project, how much it will cost. Um, we're, we're thinking absolutely it would be a private-public partnership. Um, it's not something that we're gonna be in the business of running ferries, although my grandfather and great-grandfather both worked on the ferries when they were here. I have no idea how to do that, nor do we wanna be in that business, but I do think it's a great opportunity. This kind of funding, um, if ever, hardly ever comes around, so I don't wanna see us pass up on it. Visit Annapolis will be the applicant. We are just providing support and collaboration is one of the regions, and mm -hmm. then we hope to grow that. So if we're selected for this grant, we have the opportunity to then apply for a second round of funding, which is significantly more, um, and that would help establish our ports, you know, um, infrastructure, that sort of thing. And then we would co collaborate more throughout the Chesapeake Bay region, looking at Kent County, Talbot County, any county that touches the water is a possibility of being a ferry stop. But that will be determined in the study. Heather, what size? Is this very envisioned to be? Do we have any idea? The Titanic, Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> as big as the Titanic. That's no, exciting. We can get to all the eastern shore to the western shore at one time. And, and we have looked at um, all electric ferries, and we've looked at hydrofoils, which were actually studied and brought forth to the state um, several years ago, yeah. and that never moved forward. So uh, that feasibility study will determine what size will work for us. How does it maintain funding after all this grant money's gone? Is it feasible? <clears throat> what would be the rates in order? Because if you make the rates too high, then it's not going to work used. either. Right. Right. So all th this is the first step in determining if it can move forward. And like I said, this funding is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that it's worth the shot. And in Seattle, if I'm not mistaken, that's a, that's a P3, the way they have that set up, correct? Mm -hmm. And those, they have a mixture on the ferries, right? But they're trying to phase out their, because they had an old steamer that they're using, which it actually, I think, is a Chesapeake Bay original ferry they're using out there, right? Bring it back. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, so, but then they're doing the electric ferries and they're kind of phasing them in, right? Yeah, so, I mean. I think that that would be kind of cool. I mean. I that would be kind of cool. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I can't think of a better place, you know, to land it somewhere near our airport. Um, well, we've got, we've got ferry stops, and I've talked to Heather at length about this. We have old ferry stops that literally have never been turned into anything, but they're still ferry stops. They right. could be refurbished into ferry stops right. up and down the river and on the bay, and so it could. So, I mean, this is a I mean, project I, I think will grow. Envision car, car rental, you know, area right there where you Drop get off the ferry. You can sure. rent a car, you can yeah. Bikes. bike rentals, or tours, tour yeah, buses ready to pick you up. Yeah. All kinds of assets would come through this feasibility study as well. What would we need to be able to transport people once they got here? Because we, uh, you know, the, <laughs> when you look at Kentnaros, they could get a bike and ride around mm -hmm. if that's a stop. Um, if they come to Mattapique, would they just be staying at the beach or would we make sure that we have some sort of transportation system there, whether it's bikes, whether it's, um, you know, um, Ubers? Or, I, I don't know that answer, but. That's what the feasibility study's for. 
outstanding. Good stuff. All right. So we have a motion that we support the Queens <coughs> County Department of Economic and Tourism Development in signing the MOU with Visit Annapolis and Anne Arundel County to collaborate in the Ferry Project Feasibility Study. There's been a second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Five Thanks, in favor. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. Thank you, Ms. Tonelli. Next, uh, item eight, we have um, two resolutions, 2118 and 2119, to place liens on properties, uh, one in Queenstown and one in Church Hill for nuisance violations, high grass, uncut grass. I move to approve resolution 2118 and 2119 to place a lien on this property listed in the County Zoning Administrator's Memorandum dated October 12, 2021, nuisance violations. Get a second. second. I'll second. I had to check and make sure. I was going to check to make sure I'm not on there. You're not. Your house is not on there. I'm not on there. You're not cutting your grass. All right. We got a motion to second. Times. Any discussion? All those in favor, say aye. 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 Any opposed? Five zero. Carries. All right. Thank you, commissioners. Item number nine on page uh, 62 is a request from the um, American Legion Auxiliary to support the. 2021 Wreaths Across America campaign, and this is for the Leith wreath laying ceremony <coughs> at the Eastern Shore Veterans Cemetery in Hurlock, Maryland. So um, I think the corporate sponsorship is 100 wreaths for $1,500, if you want. And there's some other categories here as well. And the uh, ceremony is on December 18th, 2021 at 10 a.m. I move to purchase 100 Rees of $15 each for Rees Across America to honor the Eastern Shore veterans in the Herlock Cemetery on December 18th, 2020. Second. All right, got a motion and a second. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? 5-0. The motion carries. All right, thank you, Commissioners. Item number 10 on page 65 is Budget Amendment CC47 for the Rural Legacy Program. And this amendment establishes additional budget authority in the Rural Legacy Fund in the amount of $251,291 for FY21 for a, um, due to a delay in a settlement on one of the easements, the Everett easement. So there is funds, sufficient funds in the uh, balance for that. I move to approve budget amendment CC47. Second. Motion to second. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Advisory motion carries. Oh, thank you, Commissioners. That's all we have. We have one desk item, and that is a proclamation there. Uh, it is for character counts, pillar of the month, trustworthiness. Got it. Um, character counts, pillar of the month, trustworthiness, proclamation 2148. Whereas Queen Anne's County was declared a character counts community, and whereas trustworthiness is doing the right thing for yourself and others, even when the rules are minor and even when no one is looking. <laughs> And whereas trustworthiness is paying your dues when you lose a bet, and whereas trustworthiness is following up your words with actions, and whereas trustworthiness is doing what is asked without finding loopholes, and whereas trustworthiness is following the process that life takes you with your friends and family to help you on the way, and whereas trustworthiness is the foundation of good relationships, and whereas trustworthiness is a reputation earned by always telling the truth, and whereas trustworthiness is like a rooster relying on the sun to come up so that it can do its call every morning. 
and whereas trustworthiness is being kind, honest, dependable, loyal, and reliable, and whereas trustworthiness is earned by not breaking promises and by not revealing secrets that were told in confidence, and whereas trustworthiness is a combination of many good things found in good people, including responsibility, confidentiality, awareness, faith, kindness, integrity, and compassion, and whereas trustworthiness is the handle and the door that leads to accreditation from your peers, and without which that door to friendship and camaraderie is shut tight forever. Now, therefore, we, the County Commissioners of Queen Anne's County, do hereby proclaim and designate the Character Counts Pillar of the Month for October, right? October to be trustworthiness. <laughs> Typo. Typo. Um. <laughs> Never mind. I'm not going to That was a tongue twister with all the trustworthiness in there. <laughs> Interesting that paying your bets is part of trustworthiness. Um, You've got to be a good gambler, Phil. Paying your bets. <laughs> all right. It doesn't necessarily have to be money. High moment of government. <laughs> could be mowing your right, grass. Cousin Rose is that. It could be Thank mowing you your grass. <laughs> That's all we had for the uh, action items this evening, Commissioners. We can move into our presentation section of our agenda. And first up, we have... Dr. Joe Ciotola, our health officer for his uh, Department of Health update. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Being the optimist that I am, <laughs> we're going to start with fiscal year 22. All right. And he has nothing but good news for us. We'll skip over that one. But I'd like to say that the year-end report for fiscal year 21, and we're going to go over it with COVID activity. Because as you all know, from March of 2020 until June of 2021, the health department was essentially doing one thing, chasing COVID, and we're still chasing COVID. But I want to be optimistic about what the health department is doing for the citizens of Queen Anne. But I have to say this now and say it to all of the individuals that work for Queen Anne County. Without their support, their diligent dedication to their, what they did during the past 21 year, being in that state of emergency, stepping in, all hands on deck, doing what we had to do to test, to quarantine, to vaccinate. Thank you, all of you, EMS housing, transportation, <coughs> donating and planning, park and rec, every single department in this county stepped to the plate. And gentlemen, so did you, and thank you. Bottom of our heart. It's been a struggle. We've had significant turnover in personnel at the health department because of retirement or just burnout and trying to recruit as most businesses know, but trying to recruit for a state position is extremely difficult. But we're going to do it, and we're going to get through this. Now, 
What are we going to do in 2022? First off, we look at our census. And that demographic shows that, surprisingly, our population is 49,874. We've always been thinking that we were around 52, 54. This data, and I even talked to Heather Canale about it this, this afternoon. I think that realistically with COVID, we have a faulted census. I think that there were a lot of individuals that one didn't get accounted for. And when you look at our demographics, yeah, 90% essentially Caucasian. African-American, about 6.3. And our other races, which are essentially our Hispanic population, is about 4%. But we know that we have larger amount in both of those lower populations because we see them, we take care of them, we know it, they're working here. That gives us an indication of where we are population-wise. Because when we talk about percentage of that vaccination and comparison of vaccination for COVID and comparison to vaccination for what we do yearly on flu, I think it gives you a pretty good idea of where we are with the population. Now, health outcomes. Queen Anne is number six in the state on health outcomes. We have a rather healthy overall population. Now, is that gonna change as we do more 55 and older, more assisted living facilities? Yes, but to what degree? We don't really know. We do know that there will be an increase in medical needs. And what really does concern me when you look at statistics and you get down to this specific, this statistic of primary care physicians, access to health care, dental, and look at mental health. We have one behavioral health, mental health provider per 950 people. Look at our primary care. One doc is supposed to be responsible for 2,800 people. To say that we have a paucity in healthcare availability is certainly truthful. Doc, real quick, um, to that point, because we also have such a transient workforce here going across the bridge, it's, do they take that into account that, yeah, my doctor isn't here in Queen Anne's County, but I may be getting medical or dental care in Anne Arundel or Montgomery or Howard. Do they, I mean, We're how basically they... lumped in that luminous healthcare and Shore Regional Healthcare. Okay. So there's, you've got practices that are owned by both medical corporations that have offices here, but also the specialty now is across the bridge. And you even see that with Shore. When Shore Regional Health University of Maryland Shore Regional Health needs specialty care, where are they going? They're going across the bridge. Right. But the count itself is physical offices and personnel providing care in the jurisdiction, as far as I know. That's the way it normally would be done, by geographical location. Okay. Some health factors that we're gonna work on this year in the health department. 
month. It's jumping over. But the health factors we're going to work on, we're going to work on adult and childhood obesity. We're going to try and make an inroad into the pre-diabetic and diabetic population and outcomes for those individuals. The leading cause of renal disease is uncontrolled diabetes, leading to renal failure, hypertension, congestive heart failure, cardiac disease, and eventually death. The other major component that we need to really focus on, alcohol-impaired driving deaths and our alcohol and drug use. And thankfully, our addiction programs and our behavioral health programs and certainly with the help of going purple with the Drug-Free Coalition, the support of the Drug-Free Coalition by the commissioners and the community, we need to address our opioid issues. And our primary problem now is fentanyl. And looking at what's happening in our southern border, I think that we need to be very, very diligent and observant as to the supply chain that may drift this way with fentanyl. But we're going to work with these, and some of those things will happen over a period of time. We're developing a process of community outreach. We've started a whole new division in the health department that is focusing on education, screening, and trying to truly address hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. We're working with the school system, the Board of Ed, to try and get wellness centers into our schools, specifically with Child Tank Community Health. And if we can do that in our Title I schools as a pilot program in a northern county, that's what we're focusing on and working forward in conjunction with the Board of Ed and Dr. Salins. We'll be to try it out there and then, then move to the other schools. Yep. And I, and, and I got a preview of it when we had our MAKO Board of Directors meeting, the new one in Greensboro, and it's a phenomenal. And I know it's Doc's been, ever since I got back and mentioned to Todd, and they've been working on it. I'm telling you, it's a phenomenal program. It really helps to, you know, fill some gaps here and there where you Bill, can. It fills a real significant gap in our northern community. And the preventative care is so essential to saving money on health care and so Houston's many other calls, it's everything amazing. else. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just really stuff. so much is preventable. Now, October one started flu season, mm -hmm. and we've already been putting the flu shots in. We've already been doing the flu mist for the pediatric population. The nurses have been going to the schools to try and catch the children up in their normal vaccinations, because with last year we lost a year, folks. So we've got to catch up, and that's what we're doing. We're doing flu vaccines at the health department, and uh, go to the health department website. We're usually doing them on Tuesdays, and so they sign up on the website. Yep. Then they get the appointment. Then they yep. go in. Go in. Same thing for COVID. If they want, we'll that get vaccine. we'll okay. get to COVID, but we're doing both. Okay. We will do both a flu vaccine or a booster for those individuals that qualify for a booster with Pfizer and quote unquote the third dose for the Moderna we will also do. We're trying to do J&J &J for those individuals that only want one shot but we are doing combined 
flu vaccine, COVID, and we're doing it in one shoulder on one side, other shoulder gets the other. I know you're allowed to do it in the same deltoid muscle, but I'd prefer knowing which arm started to have a reaction if we had one. Emergency those boosters are available now, Doc? Hmm? Are those boosters available yes. now? Yes. For, there's no age restriction. Well. Can't cross vaccinate though, right? Can you? No, you cannot cross. The only ones is for boosters, technically, is Dr. Pfizer. Is Pfizer? Moderna yeah. is only for third shot for those that, quote unquote, may potentially have immunocompromised okay. medical conditions. Okay. okay. So there is a there is a, a priority a, there. There is a priority. Okay. Now, the boosters, the priority is 65 and older, or those individuals that have high risk of exposure, healthcare professionals, EMS. So basically, safety. what we did when we were when triaging. we started it, the when tier we one. triage. Okay. We went to the healthcare providers, EMS, public safety first, and then we started drilling down on our highest, most vulnerable population, our homebound, our 65 and older. And as you go through the different agencies and functions of the health department, from our communicable disease, our cancer screening programs for breast and colorectal, our adult evaluation services, our mobile integrated community health program, which was a key factor in hitting all of our home bounds, and our senior housing. That unit did as many vaccinations and I think it was close to almost 1,200 vaccines alone by this group to homebound and senior citizens. We do reproductive health, alcohol and substance abuse services. Queen Anne County Goes Purple program was a major piece of the work that we were doing. As far as the Narcan, we are giving Narcan out to the community as much as we can. We're running our peer program for any overdoses so that the peers have a chance to interact with the individual as well as the families. One major concern that I need to bring to the attention of the commissioners, and especially coming out of MACO, Wits, etc. The state has decided to divest themselves of ownership within three to five years. So that means we may potentially lose our only inpatient treatment facility in the entire midshore. It's something that has to be on your radar. This is something that we need to really be mindful of because I talked to Bill Webb, the health officer from Kent. He made it very clear. Kent County does not have the funding to take over that building or maintain that building. And when that building is closed down, there's no other facility that he can trans transition to. <clears throat> That's something you need to be aware of. Can you get the financials for that for us, Doc? Uh, what the operational is there? And that, uh, that would have to come from Bill. But we'll try and reach out to him and see what he could say. It's going to be like the community college. It can be a regional. <coughs> That's what I'm thinking. We just need to know what the numbers are because you got to know what you're dealing with. We certainly can't have it shut down. I think it has been brought up to look at this as a regional approach to five right. jurisdictions. Yeah. Like the community you, college. And just the like we the did counties. with yeah. Chesapeake Community College. Right. What the numbers will be, what the building will be, I don't know. And what the cost of repair there is because it's been neglected for so long. 
environmental health during the entire pandemic was out in the field. They were doing their site plans, their zoning, their well testing, septics, and we just got a report from the state on compliance with our BAT program. We are 94% compliant with our BAT, which is really critical when you start looking at nitrogen. <coughs> Excuse me, and our capabilities. Child safety seat program, immunization, infants and toddlers. Our WIC program, helping with new mothers and infants. And we have a WIC van now where we can actually go to the community and do the service in the community instead of having them all come to the health department in physical. <clears throat> so in advance of all the support for 2022, gentlemen, thank you for your support. And we will move forward with these programs. Now, Question, sir. Yes, sir. On the PCPs, is so it looks like Shore is going to be opening there urgent, which I suppose would alleviate that to some minor extent, correct? An urgent care center in yeah. Queen Anne would be good like nighttime pediatrics, where if you have a sick child or you have a minor injury or you're just not feeling well, that could be, that's comparable to going in for a physician's office visit, if your physician can see you. Right now is the problem getting an appointment with physicians. Well, I think that's the question I was asking. Is it is it not the case that the PCP offices are pretty backed up once you get in? I mean, it's tough to get in and it's not going to be an urgent appointment most of the time because of the backlog. Remember now, so many people did not go for routine yearly checks or screenings. I think that's why we're seeing a significant increase in our number of EMS calls and the severity of the COPD, the stroke risk, the congestive heart failure, and even the MIs. So diabetics, we've had a lot of really significant out of control diabetic issues. So no, I would strongly recommend and support an urgent care by sure. And I think ideally it would be very, very convenient if it was run by the docs that run the ER so that there is a continuity of understanding what is needed with an urgent care and, and the difference between an urgent care and a freestanding emergency room. If that medical staff and nursing staff can do that in a combined collaborative effort, I think it would make a big difference. That's something I've talked to Shore about. We'll see what happens. I certainly got the impression from Kozell when he was up here that he was committed to there, I think they are committed to it. I think UMS corporate, now I haven't had an UMS corporate meeting as a board member to know where UMS corporate stands, but they're still negotiating the lease with the previous owner. So that seems to be more of a legal and entanglement for getting the verbiage on that lease agreement. Do you think it would help Cozell or help that happen if this commission made a resolution or is there any intervention that we I think do that, that would be useful or is it all I think it's a question of what the attorneys can agree on okay any other questions what do we do with mental health to I mean that number is 
staggering the disparity about the professionals that we have for probably those who need mental health treatment and I think it's hard <coughs> to get that what do we do to get more mental health professionals over here wish I had an answer for you I think that's one of the priorities I keep pushing with sure and Ums corporate about getting us the baseline services that we need in these five jurisdictions granted they're supposed to be covering the mature thankfully we do have some mental health available to us in Anne Arundel but not to the degree that we need it in the mature any other questions Wow. Okay. Hey, stop. Thank you. Thank you. Want to take a break before I give you COVID? No. Okay. Bring it on. Bring it on, gentlemen. Put the next slide up. There's the bugger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's the spikes. So, next slide. Oh, I got it. All right. March of 2020 to December of 2020. Total number of cases in that period of time were 2,077. And it's broken down, as you can see, by age group. And I'm sorry, the font and the numbers are not bigger for those of us that are distance impaired. And even on this gray number on a black background, I'm sitting here thinking, oh my. <laughs> but you can see the first column is zero to five the number of cases in blue, and then it's broken down by female and male. Six to 11, 12 to 17, and then you start getting into the interesting numbers. 18 to 39, 40 to 59, 60 to 79, and then 80 to 99. So our highest presented, presenting groups were essentially our 18 to 60 year olds. <laughs> Mr. Dumanu, does that I, I, put I you in that theory, group? I have a theory as to why uh -huh. the, the age from 18 to 59, what they're doing with their weekends. Yeah. <laughs> so you know the struggle we had. We had to do a regional approach to testing. We couldn't get testing supplies. And when we did get them, they allocated us 300 a week. What are you going to do with 300 test kits a week when you've got a population of what you thought was 50,000? Mm -hmm. So there was a real shortage of testing material. And if we hadn't done a regional approach at Chesapeake College with the other health departments, we wouldn't have had enough tests to even start doing these numbers. Because trying to contain this by quarantining and isolation doesn't work if you can't test them. So it became a real challenge. <clears throat> 20, March 2020 to December 2020, deaths. Death by age group. We had 24 deaths in that time frame. And when you look at the ages, thankfully, we had no one under the age of 40 expire from COVID. But when you start looking at that 60 to 79, you're looking at a significant increase, just about 10. Our primary death rate 
was 80 to 100, which we expect, okay? They have the most serious comorbidities, their immune response is limited, and most of these 18 of the individuals were actually residents in a nursing home, long-term residents. Here we go. January 21 to October 4th. Now, we, when we made the presentation in order to get in your mailbag, we stopped our data on 10-4. Total number of cases, 3,120. So total, as of the 4th of October, we're sitting at almost 5,200 cases in our population. But you're sitting at over 35% over more, it seems, from a year before. And year before is when all the lockdown was occurring. Yeah. So, but, well. And I'll, we started we started vaccinating the very last week of December. And we also had difficulty getting vaccine, as you all remember. Yeah. We begged, we borrowed, and sometimes we did a little under the table. <laughs> But we got it. <laughs> Total cases. Now, this is important for you to hear. As of tonight, 512, we are sitting at 5,339. Okay. Deaths. January 21 to October 4th, 2021. 35 deaths. So as of the 4th, we were sitting at 60 deaths. Tonight, we've lost two more individuals in the community. We're at 62 deaths. Okay, I'm gonna ask that question. The, so the 35 deaths that have occurred this year, how many were unvaccinated? That is a difficult question to answer because unless we go through every single death report and pull it up in Immunet or CRISP, it's difficult to tell. But the majority of the deaths have been unvaccinated in those individual cases that we've been able to explore and evaluate. We have hired through Maxim another epidemiologist since our previous epidemiologist visa expired and we're using a contracted epidemiologist, and that's one of the critical issues I'm having him really investigate. So I think as we go forward, I will have that number. Now, the other number that we really need to know about is breakthroughs. Breakthrough cases are occurring. And for the public, breakthrough case is a positive PCR test with an individual who has been fully vaccinated. Fully vaccinated mean it's been two weeks since you got your last vaccine dose. That you're covered, exactly. Now, this covers all three of them, Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J. &J. Okay, well, you, I'm gonna ask that other question. You gotta break it down. I know we do. Yeah. But okay. I can't right now. Right, I understand, but that's that because that, that's 
That's the piece that we all need to know. Right. Now, I can break it down a little bit when we get to our 12 to 18 year or 12 to 17 year olds, because I know they're what only getting they Pfizer. Right. Right. And of the 60 cases that we have had positive in that age, or the 60 individuals have had it, only nine had a breakthrough, only nine. So it's less, it's about 10%, a little less. So, but that, the only reason we know that. But those that, individuals uh, uh, hospitalized or non hospitalized? No. Right, just. No. That's the thing. The hospitalizations are occurring in non vaccinated. Now, we have had a few that have been breakthroughs that are vaccinated that need to be hospitalized. Okay. Any breakthrough deaths? But aren't they comorbidities? There's significant comorbidities. And I can pull the 62 deaths, right. and that's what I have Dr. Akeen doing. He's pulling every single one of the deaths since we started vaccinating at the end of December and looking at comorbidity, vaccination or not, time of vaccination, and what vaccine. This is stuff we need to know as we go forward. Now, unbeknownst to any of us in the health departments, when Walgreens and CVS started vaccinating the nursing homes, somehow the governor had made a very quiet arrangement that those individuals were then starting to get blood draws to check their antibody levels. And that's why three weeks ago, or whatever it was, about three weeks ago, when the governor came out and said he's authorizing boosters for 65 and older, because what they were seeing is a decrease in the antibody, quantitative antibody level in those nursing home patients. But what were they giving them? Well. Which one? Johnson & Johnson? Mostly Pfizer. Okay. Johnson & Johnson, remember, didn't come on the scene until right. later in the picture. But the nursing homes, through those pharmacies, they were using Pfizer. So. It's going to be very interesting to see, but that's why the whole FDA push, because the governor was ahead of the ball game when he pushed for booster shots. And really, he was asking us to do off-labeling vaccination. But now I know why, because they had actually been studying what the antibody level was. But that was not really made public. Mm. Okay? Mm. And the FDA right now, as you know, is looking at vaccine for Pfizer for the 5 to 12 year old or 5 to 11 year old. And there's still quite a bit of debate about what the FDA, what ASEP, ASEP is the group of physicians that evaluate the studies and then what the CDC recommendation is going to be. But let's look at where we are. Fully vaccinated population of Queen Anne County is about 59%. Now that includes all of your 12 and under, mm -hmm. which don't have an opportunity to get vaccinated. How many is that? Six, seven thousand, five thousand? Probably, I'd say anywhere from seven to eight thousand. Okay. Now, 12 and older, we vaccinated 68% of that population. Mm -hmm. That's good. Now, 65 and older is sitting at 89%. We can't do any better than that, folks. Because when you look at flu vaccination, 
about 55% of our population gets a flu shot. All right, this shows you what has been going on since March of 2020 and these spikes, these peaks, because we all thought first week of two of June, oh man, we got summer, this thing's down, we're seeing very little, if any, cases. <coughs> but what happened? Around the middle of July, we started going up and we kept going up and we're still going up. When I pulled these numbers on the 11th and compared them to the 4th of October, on the 4th of October, we had, I believe, 60 positive cases for October. Seven days later, we had 191. We had a 218% increase in positive cases in one week. So when you start looking at that graph and where we are tonight, the 12th, we're sitting at 210 cases already for October. Do we have data on where the increase, where those people got it from? Was there <clears throat> events they were at outside at bars or? That's like the that? contact tracing that we're. I'm more concerned if they're hospitalized. Hospitalized, we have eight individuals in the hospital. Eight That's out. been pretty stable, eight for the last three weeks. So what I'm getting at is that number you just gave us, none of those were hospitalized at this present time? There were one. Okay. Past week. Right. The week before, like two, or I think two and a half, three weeks ago, we had five deaths in one week. But they were all elderly. Most of our deaths are 70 and older with significant comorbidities, primarily congestive heart disease, COPD, or marked obesity. But you look at the graph, and I expect probably we get through October, because this is all Delta. This is the Delta variant. Now, as far as schools are concerned, yeah, we're seeing cases in kids. And from the data I'm looking at, when I look at the daily report on their ages, we're ranging anywhere from five to maybe eight cases a day in our under 12 population. Okay. No, and I hear me, no hospitalizations in any of our pediatric cases. But that's true, Doc. That's a lot. You figure five to eight a day for three weeks? Well, good many of that. And I don't time. know if Dr. Salins has. Well, well, let me ask you a question. The common cold, the flu. I mean, I know you don't try because most people to get it don't go to the doctors. They just go home and they just wait it out. Well, and the other thing is we don't know how many of them are having COVID at home, and right. it's just self-reporting or keeping the child out of school. And we also have an RSV virus, the respiratory virus, right. which is really causing more of a major impact in our pediatric ICUs on the Western Shore. Now, granted, we have no pediatric ICU over here. We have a few beds in Peninsula, but nothing in the mid-shore. And we have assurances from Shore Health and Dr. Huffner, their chief medical officer, any pediatric patient that needs ICU is transferred either to the University of Maryland downtown or to Hopkins. 
Sir. At this point in time, we are not seeing any hospitalized children. Isn't, explain this one to me, isn't it a health benefit to the system to have a fairly high rate of infection and no hospitalizations because what you're doing is building up building herd immunity yeah you're so, building the immunity so in fact, that we all aren't need. those numbers in fact not threatening they're not yeah pediatric numbers are right now and i'll say this with all candor are not scaring me we start seeing them in the hospital that's a different story right. okay well and i think again once we find out those deaths in vaccinated versus unvaccinated, I think, is the, the number we need to focus well, on because that's that's a critical piece. But I think that you've got to look at the big picture and look at the total picture of what are the pre-existing conditions. How long after they were vaccinated did they then get COVID? If, because if in if fact they seeing, were vaccinated, if they were, mm -hmm. because if we now know that that 65 and 70 year old with a lot of comorbidities have been vaccinated, and four to six months later their vaccination level is only at 40% of what it had been, that tells us that maybe, yeah, we got to be pushing more on boosters. But I don't know. I'm no doctor, but I got to say that Queen Anne's County delving out the Moderna got the, the right got one, the, right we shot. Got, we got the better end of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Gentlemen, that's about it for tonight. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. Right now, just Pfizer for 12 and up, right? Yes. What about, <clears throat> what do we hear about when it might be available for Moderna? Three weeks? I thought somebody said. They're talking right now, they're looking at Pfizer maybe by the next week and a half to two weeks. No, Pfizer for younger, but I'm saying for Moderna for the 12 to 18 year olds, when would that be available? Talking three to four weeks. Okay. So, okay. <clears throat> Other questions? And I know it was more than 15 minutes. That's all right. It's all good. Margie, you didn't set a clock on him? No, I didn't, no. <laughs> Should have. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank thanks, you. Thanks, Doc. See you, Doc. All right. <laughs> all right, thanks, Doc. Okay, Commissioners. Next, we have Scott Haas, Department of Emergency Services Director, for his quarterly update. Welcome, Mr. Medical Director. Mm -hmm. He's a hard act to follow. Good evening. <clears throat> We've been slowly trying to reel Doc back into the emergency services world, so we're going to ask him to sit with us tonight. Because the providers that are dying to see you start responding out in the field again. So good evening again, Commissioners. Uh, thank you for allowing us to do uh, an update. Normally, we like to switch and do different divisions each time that we come in. And if you recall, I had these two gentlemen with me the last time. And because of so much action happening in their areas, I felt it, uh, that we should give an update again on emergency medical services and our communications division. So Scott's got some good news and some bad news to give you. Jim's got some bad news and some good news to give you. Uh, our, our biggest good news that we have right now is we have moved back into our building and uh, the 911 center is 100% operational, which Jim is gonna cover. Uh, we have moved out of the courthouse and we're back, back into our facility. There's still a lot of things that need done at the facility because we've uh, experienced back orders and not uh, receiving all the supplies that we need uh, immediately. So probably 
sometime after the first of the year, we'll be 100% at the building. Uh, but we're, we're happy to be home. And I'm sure both of these gentlemen are going to highlight that. But Scott, I'll turn it over to you. You can go ahead and kick it off on the emergency medical services. Well, first of all, I want to thank the five of you for approving my action items, because if not, that would have really messed my presentation up today. <laughs> so I want to say- Because you already had it in your I really did. I was really hoping it was a yes. <laughs> we, we had an emergency delete <laughs> button for the horse. <laughs> Strike through that one. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm going to give you, uh, my parents always taught me bring the good home, so that's going to be the last. I'm going to let you know the realistic things that are happening. And I know that many of you are in tune because you text me and let me know that you're listening, and I appreciate that more than you ever know. Um, our call volume is up. It's, it's, it's no, I'm not sugarcoating it. Uh, from the previous update I gave you, we're up 350 or 329 calls and we're up 157 transports from the last time I was in front of you. So it, it's no sugarcoating there. What? From the previous update no, no, I gave from you. What? what? What do you attribute to this? Well, our motor vehicle collisions are off the hook right now, and I don't know what the cause is. Our serious medical calls are off the hook. And when I say that, I think it's because it's a combination of the healthcare system in general. People cannot get in to see their primary health care physicians. They're waiting longer. They're trying to treat themselves at home. And we're doing a heck of a job with our MIC group that Doc alluded to, but I think that just sick patients is a more realistic thing. There's a lot of respiratory viruses out there right now that we're hearing it in the young people, but there's an adult population that's suffering from this respiratory illness that's pretty sincere other than COVID, and that's causing some of our attrition with our, our <coughs> calls with uh, high respiratory problems. Um, so our call volume's up, our transports are up, we're transporting the hospitals, then we're running into our challenges at the hospital, which you all are well aware of. Instead of going over there and transferring a patient off in 15 or 20 minutes, we may be waiting in the hallway for an hour, hour and a half, two hours to get a patient off our stretcher and continuing care there till we get back. So um, we're meeting the challenges. We have not missed any calls yet. You, you see weekly when I let you know what our depletion uh, of our units are and I, I don't do that to try to bug you about it I just want you to be in the the know about it uh, when it's happening so the high acuities or calls are up uh, our rapid sequence intubation which I know that's uh, something that you all the, the ones that were here when we first started that program back in 2007 uh, that is a skill that we are privileged to do not all the systems can do that throughout the state of Maryland but that's a high acuity skill we've done three in the last two weeks where normally we do three to four a quarter so these are calls that require advanced airway where we actually paralyze the patient except for their heartbeat and we control their airway by inserting a breathing tube and putting them on our ventilator and controlling the respirations. Uh, with that, our, our COVID calls have remained about the same, but it's always a concern with our clinicians. Anytime they're doing respiratory procedures or they have a patient that presents with respiratory illness, we have to consider it being COVID until otherwise, so we're donning our equipment, we're putting the N95s on, we're putting our gowns or our jumpsuits on, and as you know, that is very hot, and uh, it takes a lot out of our, our, our clinicians. And I just want you to realize the stress that they're under, and they are achieving and maintaining excellence and professionalism, and I cannot tell you how proud I am of them for their daily work. Uh, our staffing continues to be challenges. We've had more resignations, which all of you are, are in tune to, and our turnover is up, which also means that the newer people we're getting in, we have less than about 15% of our staff that are experienced clinicians that have been here for over 10 years. The majority of our staff is less than five years of experience and even a greater is less than two years experience. So the older days of the experienced paramedics 
being able to really be quick on calls and understand that, that is a challenge that we are now facing that we've heard other departments have faced for years. It has now hit us truly that the older and more seasoned clinicians upon us have moved on, have medical retirements, have left to go other places, and we have now a young group of individuals. And that is causing some challenges. For the first time, I've had to have holdovers, mandatory holdovers to keep units in service. We, were, we mandated our holdovers one day and we actually had to shut two transport units down at different times throughout different days because we didn't have the staffing to meet the minimum staffing. And that's very hard to say that a section had a transport unit shut down. Um, but we're doing our best to get the staffing. We had interviews today. We're trying to recruit good paramedics. We don't just want a paramedic card. We want clinicians that I know could go to either one of your five residents and take care of you superiorly and professionally to assure that you get the best EMS there is. I don't just want a card carrier. I want somebody that knows what they're doing. That's what you asked me to do in this position, and I'm going to continue to do it. And Scott, there's one thing I'd like to highlight there, uh, the challenges that we're facing. So today, Scott highlighted that we did interviews. So we have three positions that are currently open within our, our division. And normally, we see anywhere from 40 to 50 applicants per position. We had three applicants for the three really? positions that we have open wow. is the difference of what we're seeing right now. So it's, it's been a huge challenge for us. Remember, over the last two years, there's no, their paramedic schools have been shut down. The EMT schools have been shut down. COVID is affecting, and now this continued snowball effect, there's going to be catch-up. We've got to sell our system to be the gold that people want to come to work for. So I'm going to keep bugging you about that. And it's going to be at least two and a half to three years for the programs to catch up at on, least. on how much shortage there is in the field right now. It's That's when a lot of people retired then. Otherwise, they're sitting at home collecting that unemployment because they don't want to work. But. You're not going to beat me, sir. Yes. <laughs> I, I strongly agree. Now, with and, you. Do, and do you guys, with the, this, the same theory, why the, the nurses are a shortage as well? That the nursing schools were closed down. Nursing that's, schools. Were that's closed. part of the problem. Okay. That they, they've had, they've experienced the same. And I know, at least at Chesapeake College, the programs are overwhelmed right now. The people entering into the programs because they haven't had that influx over the last two years. And I stress so. it's not just us. This is systems everywhere. Uh, I'm on a group that I get emails every day uh, from other EMS chiefs all through the nation, and they're all sitting here doing the same thing I'm doing, and we're scratching our heads because, like, even when I applied back in 2004 here, it was very competitive to get hired here. I was very blessed I got the position, and it's not like that anymore. So that's the bad. Now I want to give you a little bit of good news. Thank you for approving our soup unit and our Zoll monitors. The video is out today. If you want to learn more about our Zoll monitors, we are the first in the state to get this technology. And our two Zoll monitors that you approved tonight, and we had three that were retrofitted. We're going to be replacing our monitors every year after this, trying to get all of our monitors up to standard. So I can't thank you enough for that. We're going to continue the AED program, teaching that CPR and AED and getting them out in all the vehicles, as the director alluded to earlier. And I appreciate your support, and uh, I'm really proud of that. With that, I want to challenge all five, five of you at some point, and I've been uh, poking Commissioner Duminell a little bit. I would love for you to come spend five or six hours with me. I'll put the chief's unit in service, and we'll run calls. And I don't care when, Monday through Friday, boring times. No, let's go on a weekend. Let's go on a night. I will come here, and we'll run calls. I want you to see this firsthand. Um, with that in mind. I might even drag Doc out with us, too. That would be a treat for you. 
Um, if you're going to be at MACO in, the, in December, I have been asked to speak at that. I'm going to be talking a little bit about our MIC program, but the biggest thing I'm talking about is our backline, our Doctor First for EMS that I brought to you a couple months ago. Uh, we are, the, as I said, the first in the state, and a lot of people are asking questions about that technology, and I'm very proud that I've been asked to uh, present at MACO about that. Also, our department, our division has been asked to write a white paper on Doctor First and how it's integrating our mobile and created community health. And Doc has seen that, and the boss have seen that, and if any of you know the history of Southwest Airlines, how a little idea was scribbled on a napkin, that's how Doc and Scott actually uh, first thought of the MIC program, and that's gonna be a published paper, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you when it comes out. We're gonna continue working on our active assailant education with our special ops division, making sure our, our clinicians get everything they knew and everything they need to do to prepare for that in case the worst day happens here in Queen Anne's County. I say this all the time, we're gonna train like lives depend on it, cause believe it or not folks, it does, we have to train. So you've seen all the PSAs I've been putting out and all the public releases about training and our high acuity training, we're gonna keep doing that. We got our nice mannequins that we've been working with with the health department and eventually I'm gonna give you a good demo. And so you can see why that was such a, a great thing that we accomplished. And I told you last time I was here, I'd hoped that I would come back. And now I can honestly tell you, we did get the Mission Lifeline gold status for year number five in a row. And I'm extremely proud of that and our folks for all that it takes to get that. We have a little thing coming up in a couple weeks called the Bay Bridge Run. And uh, we're knee deep in that planning and logistics uh, with the other divisions from our department. Uh, we're looking forward to supporting that and we're going to finish that and turn the page and then you guys are going to let us know it's time to start planning our fiscal year budget for 23. So we're going to take a couple of rests for a week and then we're getting back into budget planning. And I'm going to continue with the leadership of Scott and all the fantastic clinicians in DES and the volunteer services. I need to give a true kudos for the volunteers because they have come out. We've had several mass casualty incidents in the last month. The volunteers have been able to help with transports with that and have stepped ambulances up at very unique times during the day and night. And I'm very thankful for the continued um, symbiotic relationship we have with our volunteer fire services. So budget planning, do you wanna hit a little bit on? I do, I do indeed. So I, I would be um, dismissed if I didn't tell you this, but I want you to honestly put in your minds that I'm gonna to come to you and I'm gonna to ask to open another station and staff paramedic 200 24 seven in the next budget season to give us another transport unit to hopefully get full-time clinicians that we have on staff that we can meet our call volume as we're getting it today and that when we start depleting our units, we have another unit in service. Several things are happening with this. We are transferring more patients out of the Queen Anne Emergency Room. I don't know if you see the inter-facility transports from Queen Anne Emergency Room text messages, but these are patients that have to go to higher tertiary care centers on the Western Shore or to Easton. The private ambulance is unable to make the needs, and so we're pulling a unit for that. And then we end up going to the hospital and waiting for a bed, et cetera, et cetera. Even though there's a bed arranged, doesn't mean that we just roll in there and transfer the patient off the bed. And as you saw, the call volume is, is up more than ever before. Um, there is a national standard called unit utilization hours, and normal unit utilization hours runs between 0.3 and 0.5, looking at over a 24-hour shift, which means that 30 to 50% of your time you should be busy running calls and transferring, et cetera, et cetera. We do not have a way to really monitor our transfer hours, but we've had three units hit over 0.6 unit utilization hours in the last several months, which is 
extremely high for a, a system of our size. So I want to put it on your radar. I don't want to blindside you with it, but I want to at least bring it to your knowledge. So it, so in asking to put 200, that, that's the, uh, the uh, center block pillbox at the, the Narrows Marina? Correct. Okay. So I know there's, there, would, would there be, will there be some build outs that need to take place to accommodate uh, yes. a crew there? Yes. There, we have to work with DPW and obviously talk about that, but if you gave me the rights to do it, I could put a crew there right now to manage until we did that. So I know there's Who's a couple, there right bunk, now? Just there's a couple bunks in there, right? Unless everybody's fully staffed and everybody comes to work, then I have a paramedic 200. And you hear that once in a while. Right. And right after the fiscal year, we had that. We were doing really well, and then the resignations happened. So I, I had it for a short period of time. And from a budget standpoint, it's going to take you three years to find paramedics. We've got plenty of time to... And there's oh, my favorite oh, commissioners oh, with wow. jokes. Wow. <laughs> I think he just kicked you. We'll see. I appreciate I appreciate your time and I've always been upfront and honest with you and I appreciate what you do for us. Thank you. We will find the paramedics. There you go. Worry. Uh, I figured you would. So part two of this. Well uh, done, Jim. I'm gonna continue Scott's challenge. So uh, part two is is uh, Jim's update on the 911 center. And if you haven't seen it yet, you need to come out and see the, the new technology we have at the 911 Center. It's, I think we've got one of the best centers on the Eastern Shore, if not the best center on the Eastern Shore. Uh, the room is totally redesigned. It's, it, everything inside of it is brand new. And it's a, a great home for our 911 um, dispatchers and supervisors. And the pictures that he's going to show you of what the center looks like up here does not do it justice to what it actually looks like live. Uh, we're actually giving a formal tour tomorrow at 10 o'clock around 10-ish. And we're welcome to join us if you like. The Drug Fee Coalition is going to come through and take a look at it after their, their meeting. If uh, any group would like to visit our 911 center, we're phone call away. And we're, we're happy to show uh, the technology that you guys have invested in over the last couple of years. So Jim, not to put any pressure on you, but take it away. So the first thing I have to do is, uh, is thank the commissioners for uh, doing the uh, critical force study and giving us, uh, giving the whole division a raise. We lost our edge and uh, for the years I've been here, I could always maintain a full center uh, with COVID and everybody else giving pay increases. We were, we were bleeding pretty bad. Um, we're getting that edge back. I still have a few openings, but every dispatcher we sat down, each, each one of them, the director I, and uh, gave them their, the great news. They were very appreciative. It's done a lot for the morale, and it's uh, it's starting to stop that bleeding. So, on behalf of the whole division, we thank you very much for that. It uh, it's put us back in the game. There we go. Whoops. Sorry. It's so a next generation 911. So we have finally finished the last procurement phase. Uh, we went to the numbers board last month, asked for another seven hundred thousand dollars for the shore. This takes the AT&T, which is coming to the door, and everybody has Carousel, Motorola equipment, so this ties the two together and makes it work. Um, that was approved. <clears throat> Queen Anne's County was the uh, fiduciary on that, so we'll be moving forward. Uh, Queen Anne's County, um, we signed the contract back in December, right before Christmas. Our special construction is already installed. We have a Verizon circuits in place now, and we have Maryland Broadband, which is running fiber up 301, um, coming to the MSP barracks, and they're also coming in from 304 up um, Safety Drive. So they'll be coming into each side of the building so we'll have true diversity and they should be done here in about a couple of weeks. <clears throat> we have a projected go-live date uh, of January 22nd. 
Um, Motorola, excuse me, AT&T is all ready to go. The problem is Motorola bought out Vesta so they could get better corner on the market. So their resources are very limited. So uh, I can tell you Montgomery County was the first Maryland County that signed um, under the uh, DC project. They just went live last week. So they're two and a half years waiting for this to happen. Um, they're picking up a little bit of speed, but uh, AT&T is very optimistic for January 22nd, January 2022. Uh, Motorola is slowing down, but uh, first quarter we're supposed to go uh, with our next generation 911, and the rest, of, the rest of the shore should fall in behind us. And Jim has to come in here January and say it's operational. I, I pushed <laughs> Since very we hard. gave you a bunch of challenges, that's Jim's challenge. I, I'm pushing very hard. Uh, so the 911 center, I'm going to go just a little bit further. I am going to say that we have probably for another couple of weeks until the next 911 center does the refresh, the most current 911 center in the state of Maryland. Uh, when we got at the room, we pulled everything out. We have fiber optics. We have all brand new cables. Uh, we, right now we are the state of the art center in the state. Can't, I won't hold on that title very long because there's somebody right behind me, but uh, that's going to come along and update. But we basically had a six positions um, of Caroline or Dorch or Talbot or even Kent needed to come over uh, an emergency. We didn't have room for them. Um, we truly didn't have a backup center. So we have 10 workstations in the new center. Um, six of them have primary radios, which we brought over. Two of them, we have a laptop set up. It's not the best idea, but we do have that in case we have an emergency. And I have two seats that can only answer 911 system. We have a brand new phone system that is what they call in soak mode. It's there, it's running. They're looking for any problems. It goes live on November excuse me on November 9th um, and then we are taking out all the copper and we're putting in PR, PR lines are in and that new phone system will switch over to the PRIs. I have a few open positions it's been kind of hard but we are working on um, getting that uh, filled. The problem is uh, it's, it's kind of hard to, to get people interested. Um, we've had some entry level come in we go through them they're not interested or they once they get in there find out what it's all about they don't want to do it. So we've tried to go after more seasoned with the raise, we're, we're starting to get a little bit of interest back in that. So uh, we'll see how we make out with that over the next couple of weeks. Computer-aided dispatch. So this is the next big one that's uh, other than um, next gen one. This is the other big thing that's on the plate. Um, we have our teams building it. The sheriff's office has their teams. We have the CAD team that is in building. Um, some of the big things is the active 911 interface for the fire <coughs> service. We've been working with them to make sure that they're getting all the information that they need. So this is their chance to go back. <coughs> And work with the CAD people and say this is the data that we're looking for this is the order we want it in and we make sure we get that to them the other big one is image trend that's for ems um doctor no it's um, at at hospital at hospital so this is able to tie into the CAD system so we can track how long the ambulances are at the hospital what their turnaround time is it gives us a lot more data right now we can't do that with our current CAD but we will with a new one and the one that i'm really happy about is it's called asap to psap we get so many alarm calls a day, we have to pick up the phone and enter the information. This is a national standard. They automatically drop it into our CAT system. We don't have to have any more phone calls. We get more information and all the information is right there. We will be the second. Prince George's County has it right now. We will be the second to have ASAP to PSAP. It's a very well-known platform and it's gaining um, popularity and speed. And if you notice one there, I put the little date for you a couple times. April 5th is when we go live. So we can get rid of a, a very old CAD system and we'll go live on uh, April 5th. It just gives you the, kind of a guideline. 
April 8th is our last build out with our CAD team. Um, December, November, excuse me, December 7th is the last with the RMS, Exchange for Records Management System for the Sheriff's Office. December 22nd, all of our systems have to be, and data is in, the systems are locked, they start cleaning it up, and then they start doing an audit. January 22nd is when we start uh, mobility administrative training for field reporting, that's more for the law. And then uh, January 4th through 6th is when we go into CAD functionality with the with CAD. February is all CAD. Interfaces will be installed and tested. March is when we start training. Home month March and then April 4th, we have the team fly in and on April 5th, we throw the switch. What's biggest about this and it's for our, for the EMS and the fire and EMS is it's called crew force. It's gonna give them a much better platform of being able to use the mapping. Um, they'll have information right there on their iOS or their phones. They can't do that right now. They have active 911, but they get this little kind of like a page text message. This is very interactive. They can go, they can see where the call is. As we are putting notes into the call with the information, it's going right to their, their devising and, and updating. Um, it's all real time. It's updated real time. There's no lag. So that will be part of the, uh, the go live. And this was supposed to be the basement of the courthouse. I had a lot of pictures in there, but for some, for some reason they didn't stick. Um, Scott kind of misled you when he said we would be done at the courthouse. I got a little corner and I'm not giving it back to you. But the backup center has the brand new carpet in. We have five 911 consoles, thanks to the numbers board. Um, we went to the numbers board last month and I was able to get some more grants for a UPS and for a fire suppression system, which should be going in soon. And our goal is by November 9th, when we do the new phone system, we'll be able to at least process 911 calls there and some limited radio capabilities. And then once we have the new CAD up and running, we'll be pretty much a functional backup center. And the shell of the room is there now, so if you happen to be in the courthouse, take a trip in the basement and take a look at it. But it, it will be a very impressive setup also when it's finished. <coughs> Do we have any questions? Questions? Mm. That was very thorough. <coughs> the thing I want to end on is um, both these guys. Do I, my, my budget. I need $300,000 to finish out the comm center for radios. <laughs> so there you go. Finish it for what? <laughs> radios. Oh, okay. Four radios to, to, for the console. So what I, what I want to end on is uh, both these guys run our 24-7 operations. And the staff that is working on our 24-7 operations, they basically uh, have told you our shortage that we have in staff right now. The staff has really stepped up and has worked really hard to make sure that there are no holes anywhere in the system. And I know on the dispatch side, I keep going into the room and same it's faces. like, I, it's the same faces, same people working over and over and over again. And they are really committed to make sure our system does not fail. And I'm very proud of both divisions and how both divisions have stood up and, and handled this. As your farmers would say, they spend more time here with us than they have at home, but it's always the same faces, but they're in there making sure that we have the staff to, to, to keep the place running. But I leave Excellent. in the evening, and it's the same faces I see the next morning. And, it, and it's been that over and over again in both divisions. And they are very dedicated employees and are working very hard to make sure our system stays up and running. And we're very proud of them. Awesome. Everything? Okay, we know you're good. I'd be glad to be out there running in the field. <laughs> and we'll be glad to see you out there.
Thank you. Thank you very much. For everything. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you for what you're considering. Yeah. Thank you all. Very good. Our system. Yeah, very good. Okay, commissioners, we have one more presentation. I would do that, yeah. yeah. I used to do it with my brother. Yeah. Over in Miami Park in the county. We have, uh, oh, yeah. George Harvey, come on up, George. Blues Brothers, come on up. Like, you know, I was thinking of like, you know, I was thinking more of like, you know, Mick Jagger on a dress-up day or something. You got, you got you know sunglasses. I mean? Yeah. Right. Come on up, George. I think we should have a play-up music. Maybe we can incorporate that for yeah. everyone that's walking that's up right. from now on. That's a good idea. I think that'd be fun. If he's going to sing, I think. sing for us? Let's <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So All right, take it. Oh, look at Oh. We don't have too much to tell. Turn down the house and all that. We've got a couple things to show you guys. It won't take long, seven minutes or less. Fire away. We've got a new website, and a new website. We haven't had a, our own website for a long time. It really was decent. We finally got around to doing something. It's simple. You can find everything we make on there. No problem with that. We're still marketing the same QACTV.com, the same simple uh, domain that we always have. So, and then Bruce is going to show you about, I'm tell you, show you a video about some of the numbers. I think you guys were interested in seeing some of the numbers. Yeah, we, we, we find it interesting because I don't think people really know how much people watch. Like when we, when we talk to some people, they're like, oh, what, like 20 people watch the commissioner's meeting, right? Ha, ha, ha. You'd be amazed how many people are actually So we did. We made a video that not only compares, uh, that tells you uh, your numbers, but we actually went back two years and compared you against Talbot, Anne Arundel, Montgomery, everyone around Maryland, and you'll be fascinated to see what we found. So we can play that video, and this is much more entertaining than uh, that face. listening that. to me. Oh. Wait, I'm not ready. Okay. We here at QAC TV get the impression that you don't know how good you got it in Queen Anne's County. That's right. While Montgomery, Anne Arundel, and Talbot County all boast about their amazing local channels, we fly under the radar consistently, outproducing every other local station in Maryland in one way or another. Oh yeah, we're totally better. That's right, Ted. Totally. Should we, uh, prove it to him? Let's! Since 2018, QAC-TV averages one million views a year. Seems like a lot. If we had a penny for every view, we'd have $27.39 every day. In the past year, the dog time, our YouTube views have increased by 30%. The total time spent watching us on Facebook increased by 120%. We passed 10,000 followers on Facebook. In 2019, we reached 55,100 unique individuals on Facebook. Tell the people what makes up a unique view. A unique view is counted whenever someone new clicks on one of our videos. But only 50,381 people live in Queen Anne's County, according to Google in 2019. So more people watch us than QAC has living here? No other local channel in Maryland can say that. What about the Ocean City Tourism page? Doesn't count. That's great, guys. But you know, covering the county's meetings is what butters our bread. George, listen to these numbers. We butter that bread nicely. What? For the past two years, the dog ties. QAC County Commissioner meetings average 1,961 views per meeting. Talbot, Montgomery, Frederick, and Anne Arundel County Commissioner meetings average about 570 views per meeting. That's not each. 
That's total. But Talbot, Montgomery, Anne Arundel, and Frederick combined have about 2,385,962 residents. That's scary accurate, Ted. I'm known for my deadly accuracy. But our budget is so much smaller than some of those counties. We do more with less. This is the way. This is the way. Let's tell everyone what our most popular videos have been. Should we do the list? Let's do that list! The Sheriff's Lip Sync Challenge. The April Fool's video on the Bay Bridge. The Juror's Summons video. Around Town with Mandy. I interview Queens County Public Schools sports teams. Are Mermaids Real? The Bay Bridge Rehab Project. Circuit 199 with Travis Pastrana. The Character Counts Super Show. And the DES Opioid Emergency Response video. Let's hit them with some more facts. We produced over 100 live shows this year. We produced over 350 videos this year. The average view on one of our Facebook videos is little over a minute. But an average Facebook view for everyone else is only 18 seconds. Did we forget anything? We saved Christmas! Happy holidays, everybody. Merry Christmas! So, so Sheriff, we have Santa over here. Website up, Chris. I forgot I was going to show you guys the website. It won't take a minute. This is our new website, and if you land on the homepage, which is that, if you're looking for something we did in the last two weeks, it's probably right there on the homepage. Um, if you're looking for something else, you can search. Every page has a search field, and it searches all the videos we've made, all the videos we do make. If you want to find out, see a live show, or you want to see what's on the channel right now, then you would click on broadcasting now. And if you want to go to the meetings because you're trying to find an older meeting, now we have everything all in one place on this website. And the meetings archive has different playlists and it actually has, which you guys may have seen before, but it actually has its own search field just for that section. Now, if somebody wanted to get a hold of us, then they can just use a contact form if they want us to come out and film or if they want to have a question or something else. And we have links to all our social media on there. And uh, if you just want to get back to the county site, you just click on government. So it's really, you can find everything we do all on this one website. It's really simple, really straightforward. That's well done. That's Good job. We well this. done. I got an important question. Yeah. Why does the sheriff has more views than me on the video? That doesn't. Because you guys were singing. Because he's got a gun. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be hard truth, Chris. It's just more entertaining. God. So, I'll tell you, if you guys want to do a lip sync, first of all, I digress. So that the spoof that we did April first, yeah, I was getting phone calls from people out of the state of Maryland that yeah, got it yes. and watched it. They thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, that story got picked up by by other news outlets too. Yep. Yeah, we yep. did find some. Well, job well done. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's because he has his own Facebook. They have a share yeah, of Facebook this. We have to do a challenge of some sort against the sheriff's department. Yeah. You guys have to boost our videos on your Facebook. That's yeah. What you can do. All right. We'll so to, do you think that's more than you guys thought? Well, I guess the good thing about this whole thing is <clears throat> after the presentation from DES, they asked for more money. You guys don't have to do that, right? Well, we, 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 we were just talking. We were just texting each other as we saw that. We thought, oh, how much should we ask for? How much should we ask for? A dollar of you. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> a dollar of you. No, we're good. We're good. Yeah.
<laughs> so, but we did want you guys to know that you do have a lot more views per meeting than you probably realize, or than some people. That's do. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, the average that numbers are really good. Well, I think it's one of the best things we ever did, and probably one of the first ones in the state to do it to go live. Actually, because most mm -hmm. most yeah. of the counties are still tape delay, or you know, get, you got to go get them afterwards. But the live, I think the live component caught on pretty quick here, especially when we have controversial things come up. We seem to, I bet we get good views on that night, huh? Oh yeah, I mean, when when COVID first broke out, you were averaging around eight thousand a meeting. Wow, and yeah, like, that when, that's when a lot of people. And like the Board of Ed, now they have their own stuff going on with school starting. They were getting those numbers too. Right. Good. Well, you guys do a fabulous job. I mean, not just these, but the videos you do going around for local businesses, promoting all the events going on. Wherever you go, people, they do talk about QAC TV. They enjoy watching the programs. It's a tremendous resource for the county. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I know it's come a long way since I've been commissioner. Honestly. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah it's come a long way in six and a half plus years. Um, How are you going to combat the live stream? How you, you know, I mean, I don't get to watch you anymore because I got, I got cut the cable. So I live stream everything. You, they yeah, live stream. Facebook. Yeah, we you live stream. Live stream. Not, I'm talking about through my TV. You can. You just no, you can, cast them through the TV. If you go to broadcasting yeah. now on our website, yeah. then it's anything that's on TV is on there. Yeah. He still uses you, the TV you, to watch. You have YouTube on your TV? Yeah. yeah. You see, you I, need to get like a Roku player. I do got YouTube on the TV. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you can do it on Roku. You can do it on Roku. But does it give you live? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Live on YouTube, Facebook, TV. Okay. It's just, it's See, we need to do a little tutorial there because there's a lot of people that don't know that. If only they could do a video to show people how to log Yeah, honestly. We'll be back in two weeks. Hold on. No, that's a great idea because with all the advent of the Rokus, the Googles, the Fire Sticks, a lot of people don't understand and how to a they could cast from their phone which is just as easy as yeah. or bring it up on the tv if you got it right so it would be good for you guys to do like a psa showing the different ones how to set them yeah up we could do that yeah i think yeah. people would appreciate that especially the older uh people that may have older sure. tvs where yeah. they've got to go out and get a third-party hdmi device to be able to do it so future streaming anyway i mean it's yeah, yeah. it's clear I mean, to see the cord is definitely getting cut yep. more and more so yeah mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, awesome. Which I guess leads us to a question talking about money is um, how, how do we, because we know the ABB franchise agreement, I doubt, is going to get picked back up. So that's going to be quite a blow for you guys in terms of money, right? I mean, based on where it's at. That's now. everybody's seeing that right now. Right. Right? What are they what, saying? That Chris well, right there? That's all, is that, oh, that's live right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's right live yeah. on the us, website. It's us yeah. watching live us. On the website. Yes. <laughs> right, us watching yeah. us watching us. You just got another view. Well, it certainly can't. It's a comment right now. It certainly can't be pulled off without the talent that you guys have working in your department. There's no doubt about it. Well, we're hoping you guys plan to keep funding us after the. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, well, I mean I, that's a conversation we got to have because that's what, what we got two years. It's left still peanuts. It's peanuts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was based on number of hookups and like I said, people yeah. cutting the cord. Them hookups are going like this rapidly. Right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I see there's gonna the days coming. Just like other things, they're gonna have to find a way. Like we were talking like about highway user. The lines, well, the highway right? user revenue funds. Well, we got a bunch of electric cars. How are we getting gas tax? You know, it's kind of gonna be the same thing. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. There's gonna be some tax kind based of a on streaming. mileage. They're already. You know what I mean? They're gonna have to find a, a way to tap into that for funding. You know, it's gonna happen. Um, they're, they're not gonna just let that go and. Uh, somebody's going to have to. Gonna I mean, if you do it the it. same way, somebody's going to have to do some legislation to because the legislation is only based on cable viewers. I mean, TV viewers, not cable subscribers, not um, streaming. So, 
and the creativity well, of your yeah, content. The 1984. So. You guys get kudos for your the creativity of your content. Thank you. Thank you. All, always good stuff, and and people that live here, you know, can identify what what's going on, and and it's close to home. And, yep. and I, I think that's part of the reason why you guys do so well. Thanks. Yep. We're going to do some more marketing. So, so you guys going to do like a, now you need to do like a spring break road trip to Florida or something, bring it to, and people will be like, I don't know where that's at on the, in the Narrows. Doesn't look for the. All right. <laughs> yeah, they, they know. <laughs> he got up on us. All right. Oh, we got it. Let's get some more questions. No, we'll come back good. for money some other day, like when the franchise runs out. <laughs> so, All right. Very, very well done. Very well done. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. We're, we're out, but Chris and Ted have to stay. So if you guys just want to keep rolling all night, keep that's doing fine. It. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can go in one of those executive sessions and you know, three oh, hours. Right. I like that. Yeah, yeah. We, we love that. Yeah. Before you close out. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah. All right, commissioners, we have our second uh, press and public comment period. Do we have any press and public comment? Gentlemen? Anybody sign up? Nope. Okay. All right. Who wants to go first? I have nothing, so I'll go first. I do. I just want to do uh, thank everybody for coming in to report tonight. We're pretty awesome, but that's all I got. Yeah. Um, so, gentlemen, in front of you is a letter that uh, was drafted to uh, Peter Francho. Uh, if you guys could take a look at it, um, read it. I'd like to make it a desk item or part of our commissioners meeting in two weeks. Um, read the letter uh, regarding some of the moratoriums that he's uh, mentioned in his campaign efforts. Um, and then I'd like to put a letter to get, take this letter and, and, and if you guys want to get on board and sign it, uh, I'm certainly going to put my name on it and send it off to him. Uh, if you guys want to get involved in that, uh, you have till the next commissioner's meeting in two weeks to let me know and we'll draft this letter. Take, so take a look at it. Uh, read it. If you have any questions, let me know. That's all I have. All right. Oh, also we got, we did the homecoming parade uh, for uh, Ken Island High School. Um, a lot of the floats were were cleverly done, and I, it appeared that the theme was uh, African safari so that, yeah. type of thing. And so there was a good turnout, a lot of folks on the parade route. Um, so that was a good thing. Commissioner Wilson. Well, well, uh, I thought the uh, presentation by Health and the uh, EMS guys was very significant. Because one thing you certainly learn from that is, is that uh, if, if we didn't have the vaccines that have come up, which we wouldn't have had 15 years ago, and a health department that could provide them, and emergency equipment that could get us to the good hospitals we have, we wouldn't have eight people in the hospital. We would have something like the Spanish flu, which we had in 1918, and uh, it would be a real horror here. So I think the excellence of that whole effort that Queen Anne's County has made by financing it and us backing it and then having such terrific staff has really been a huge advantage to this county and uh, something to be very proud of and that uh, I hope that we're going to and I expect us to uh, back that up by helping them with the LEOPS program and maybe an expansion in the uh, Station 200 area because they wouldn't ask for it if they didn't need it so. There it is. There it is. 
Why? That's right. That's all you uh, I guess I'm, I'm going to start with uh, the Drug Free Coalition and uh, the dedication we had uh, last week. Uh, the Cross Island Trail at Love Point Park. Uh, basically, uh, I want to say thank you to Nancy Scarsozzi with Parks and uh, Steve Chanley, the Director of Parks, for allowing that uh, transition down there. Purple crepe myrtles, benches, uh, purple on the Cross Island Trail has been painted on, on the trail. And signs basically just uh, talking about addiction awareness. So now instead of a Queen Anne's County goes purple for just the month of September, we have a year-round uh, site down there at Love Point Park that you know gets well used. There's a lot of parents, a lot of games, a lot of kids, and hopefully that'll you know a parent will see that and, and strike up that conversation with their child. Unfortunately, today they had to change the number on our county signs. There's now been eight deaths. Uh, from uh, opioids so you know that that number is down from last year last year it was a total of 13 uh, we're at eight now I hope we don't have any more for the rest of the year uh, another thing that uh, I was fortunate enough to do was last Monday uh, a week ago Monday I went over to Anne Arundel County and testified on their resolution for the Bay Bridge that was a carbon copy basically of ours of what we voted for two weeks ago and uh, they passed it six to six to one. So we are both uh, all about a replacement bridge for the ailing bridges we have now. And I'd just like to tell the public that <clears throat> hopefully the county is going to be working on uh, sometime in the next month or two or three uh, some information that we're going to be uh, delving out. And maybe it's we do it in a ask the commissioner, which we haven't done in so long because of COVID, uh, a, a town hall meeting to discuss. Uh, this project at the Bay Bridge and to bring the, the public up to date on where the traffic's coming, where the traffic's going, what we can expect over the next 15 to 20 years. If we don't build, if we do build, you know, there's just a lot of questions and I think the public needs to understand that, you know, this isn't just a bridge project, it's a corridor project and it's going to in involve pedestrian bridges, overpasses, sound barrier walls, you know, whatever you can think of in such a large project. So that's something we're hoping to get out to the public here in the next two to three months uh, to start that dialogue, to get everybody better educated so they know what uh, what we know, the public will know. And that's all I got. Uh, I, I think that's a, a really good idea. There's what I see people have a lot of questions or ideas of solutions that have already been studied, mm -hmm. have already been ruled out, that are not going to happen. Right. Um, and they probably also don't realize the level of work that the commissioners have put into examining everything and talking with the state. So I think it will answer a lot of questions for people. And I, I think as you talk to people and you explain everything, they, they understand it better. Yes, they do. A, a lot more better. But it just got to lose the notion that we're not just dumping another bridge there exactly. with no other improvements. We're we not going to dump this wasn't some willy three lanes decision. into five lanes. Or, you know, I've seen some comments and some people have talked about that. It's, it's a corridor upgrade right. that's long overdue. I mean, and that's the bottom line. It's, it's the only overdue. relief we're ever going to get. So we need to keep the stay the course. Right. Um, other than that, it's oyster season. So get out there, thank a waterman by going out and buying some oysters and enjoy yourself. That's all I got. Uh, make a motion to adjourn. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. You have been watching the Queen Anne's County Commissioner's Meeting. Thanks for joining us tonight. This program is brought to you by QAC-TV. QAC-TV are these people right here. And these people right here would love to thank you again for your continued support. Please check us out on Facebook, YouTube, like, subscribe, notifications, all that good stuff. 
and we'll see you at the next commissioner's meeting.